<laughs> so far, so good, Yana. Uh, 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 still bearded after a full month. Uh, I, I, my uh, wife is still going through the adjustment period. You know, the jury is still kind of out on it, I have to say. Uh, I can't promise the beard is going to be a long-term thing, but uh, uh, it's been uh, it's been okay. It's been okay, so that's been good. My mom likes it, so there you go, right? That's a one positive vote. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, excellent. Okay, welcome everybody to the Mythgard Academy uh, class on the Return of the Shadow. We are in week 15 of the Return of the Shadow, and we, after tonight, have two weeks left. That is a definite two weeks left uh, after tonight. Today, we are going to... Um, uh, uh, look at some really fun stuff. But first, two things. First, um, I wanted to uh, remind you that it's April now. And as it is now April, we are in coming into the last month in which people are able to register for Mythmoot. So if you haven't yet, do it. Mythmoot is going to be awesome. It happens in the beginning of June, June 1st through 4th. Uh, I am super looking forward uh, to that. I just realized this past week, uh, that the new Baron and Luthien book is going to come out during Mythmoot, like while we're all there together. So we're totally going to have a... Um, the, the venue that we have has these awesome, like, uh, fire pits outside where you can, like, sort of hang out under the stars uh, uh, next to the fire pit. We are totally doing some community read-alongs uh, with the new Baron and Luthien book when it comes out. Uh, it's going to be awesome. Huge reading party at Mythmoot. Uh, I mean, how about that, right? Like, a new Tolkien book comes out, and, like, they're all there together, you know, to... to it, it's it's going to be awesome. So, uh, okay. Anyway, so, uh, so Mythmoot is going to be fantastic. I'm so excited for Mythmoot. Uh, again, June 1st through 4th. We're, we have to uh, 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 stop taking uh, reservations, like, fairly... I, you know, the begin, beginning part of May. So you've only got about a month to register now. So please uh, don't forget to register. It's going to be awesome. So that's the first thing. Second thing. Uh, second thing is um, our new books, right? The electors have spoken and the election has happened. I think you've probably, some of you have heard rumors about this on social media. Uh, one of the two books that won was not a surprise. I can't say that I've been shocked by it, and that is, of course, The Treason of Isengard, the next uh, work in the uh, History of Middle-earth series, continuing on through the history of The Lord of the Rings. So that's going to be awesome, right? Uh, but the uh, second one was a little bit more of a surprise. Um, in a sense, uh, the electors have been flirting with this book for a long time, but they finally have decided to get serious. Uh, and to some of you, this might need a little bit of explanation. Um, the other book is The Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius. I'm so excited about this. So, um, uh, in case you're wondering why we're like reading a, you know, a sixth century dialogue uh, translated from Latin. Uh, a sixth-century sixth Latin philosophical dialogue. Um, uh, there are several reasons why. Um, the primary reason why is I've been making allusions to Beow uh, to Beowulf. I almost said uh, to Boethius uh, for m many, many years. Basically, ever since I started my podcast, I've been making uh, allusions to uh, uh, to Boethius and how much it influenced Tolkien. Um, how even more profoundly it influenced Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis is all over Boethius, um, and really, it's not just Tolkien and Lewis. Uh, Boethius is one of the most influential writers that nobody ever 
ever reads anymore. I mean, The Consolation of Philosophy was literally the number two bestseller of the Middle Ages. Like, the Bible, number one, Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy, number two. Uh, this was like one of the standard books that everybody knew and that influenced uh, thinking in Western thought for a thousand years and you know, the, the, the relics of it still remain today, even though nobody reads it anymore. Um, it is, it is uh, incredibly, incredibly influential. Um, so really important to know. And as I said, Tolkien knew it, Lewis knew it, it really infl- influenced both of them. So it's going to be really, uh, it's going to be really fun uh, to to go through together. We're not gonna uh, take all that long to do it. It's because it's quite short, uh, certainly compared to the other books that we're doing. Uh, it's in five books. Um, I'm thinking we'll probably, I'm, I'm probably going to schedule seven weeks uh, on Boethius. Um, it's going to be awesome. So we're going to read it. <laughs> we're going to read it in translation, uh, Stephen. Uh, by the way, well, of course, one of the other finalists, uh, if you saw the finalist list, I posted it. It was posted on the Mythgard Academy uh, Facebook page, um, was uh, Mallory's uh, Mort D'Arthur and uh, Ed Powell, our, uh, you know, the chair of the the chair of the Council of the Wise was asking me, it's like, well, you know, if Mallory wins, uh, what translation are we going to use? And I'm like, hey, we're not going to use a translation. Are you kidding me? We're not going to read Mallory in the original. No question. Mallory's Middle English is super easy. Uh, I mean, it's like way easier even than Chaucer. So we absolutely would have done uh, uh, Mallory in the original Middle English. And what's more, uh, we would practice to get. I'd be, you know, I, I you know, we we do some practice uh, how to read it aloud, so you could read Mallory's Middle English, which sounds different than Chaucer's Middle English because it's already in the middle of the vowel shift and stuff. Um, <laughs> it would, that would have been fun. That would have taken forever. Oh my goodness. Uh, but anyhow, so it's going to be cool. So, but Boethius, I am so excited about Boethius. So we're going to do this. Is our first, uh, uh, our first medieval work that we're doing. So we're sort of stepping outside the modern period here, which is great. And I would want to, you know, I, I want to uh, just sort of say for those of you who are nominating and everything, I think this is awesome. I think it's great to, you know, we've been doing all sort of modern fantasy and science fiction so far, and of course that's great. That's our bread and butter, right? But. Um, I think it's it's you know I would be delighted to include pretty much any um, any kind of uh, books or that you guys want to do, and not just books, right? If you guys want to do movies, you want to do like uh, television series, you can do like a whole television series, but maybe like elect a season of a television show or something uh, that we could do. That would be really cool too. So I would be totally happy to do any of that stuff. So I I, I just want to let you know, you know, as we as we continue on, we're in the what fourth year now, I think. Uh, yeah, fourth year of uh, the Mythgard Academy. Um, you know, there's uh, there's no reason we have to sort of wind down and, and uh, uh, run out of material here. Uh, there's lots and lots for us to be uh, to be talking about as we move forward. So, anyway, yeah, it's. Uh, uh, <clears throat> It's going to be cool. So Boethius, I, 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 the reading assignments will be relatively short. Um, uh, somebody, I forget who it was. Somebody was asking me if we were, I think it was on Twitter. Somebody was asking me if we, if we could do a bonus class on uh, Chaucer's trans, Middle English translation of Boethius at the end. That would be like super hardcore, right? Super geeky uh, to do a Middle English, to be looking at a Middle English translation of this medieval Latin work. Uh, uh, we could totally talk about it. I mean, I'm happy to sort of show some passages. Uh, and how Chaucer turned some of the things. Maybe I'll actually integrate that in as we go, because that'd be fun. But anyway, whatever.
whatever. Um, it's going to be great. So that's what we're going to do right after. So when we finish the Return of the Shadow, as I said, two weeks. we got this week and then two more weeks. We are going to be done. And the, what's today? The 5th, right? So we're looking at, uh, what, the 19th? Uh, 19th of April is going to be the last day of the Return of the Shadow class. And I'm completely serious about that. That's actually going to happen. Uh, I may have to go for three or four hours that night, but we're totally finishing that night. I don't care. Um, then we're going to have um, then we're going to have a little break. Right, uh, we're gonna. So I'm gonna be away for a couple weeks, um, and then uh, we'll start. So in uh, in May, we'll start Boethius, and then uh, we'll do Boethius for, as I said, I think probably seven months. So then we're looking at starting Treason of Isengard. You know, by like July ish uh, is when we, is in it, sort of the middle of July. So that's um, that's uh, that's the trajectory for Mythgard Academy stuff. So. Um, yeah, did I say seven months? I didn't say seven months. Did I say seven weeks? Did I say seven months? Oh, I was just a little slip of the tongue if I did that. Oh, okay. no, no, as if I would really do that. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's all it's all good. Uh, seven, seven weeks, seven weeks, yeah. I totally did say that, James. I, oh, well, oh, well. Uh, yeah, no, 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 no. No, that was totally not a Freudian slip at all. No, 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 that was just a completely innocuous mistake. Seven weeks on Prometheus, and then we're done, and off to the Treason of Isengard, on which I believe we are going to spend uh, probably a substantial amount of time like we have with The Return of the Shadow, because, of course, I have been absolutely loving. Uh, this is the first time I have ever done a careful, like, cover-to-cover study of these books. Um, of course, that's really been true of most of the history of Middle Earth series, as I've said before. You know, I've done, I've you know, sort of read around in them and, and done lots of reference and stuff. And you know, I'll be thinking about a thing, so I'll go back and I'll I'll read that bit in the history of Middle Earth. But I've never done, you know, cover to cover to cover, just you know, all the way through the history of Middle Earth series and kind of thinking about them as a unit in this way that we've been doing. Uh, it has been so awesome. So I'm really, I'm really, uh, I'm really fascinated by that. Uh, yeah, exactly, James Oakley. We're not going to be doing Boethius on a exploring the Lord of the Rings kind of uh, basis, you know, uh, uh, where we're going to be going into our sixth week of chapter three uh, this, <laughs> this next week. Uh, yeah, it's not going to be like that, I promise. Um, so, uh, yeah, good. Um, yeah, Tony Mead says, I'm pretty sure we'll finish the entire history of Middle-Earth uh, uh, series on the Academy before we finish The Lord of the Rings uh, on Tuesday night. That's quite likely, Tony, even if you take into account the fact that we do a non-Tolkien work every other one, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, cool. Okay. So anyway, so that's the, I wanted to make that announcement for those of you who hadn't heard it, uh, and to kind of let you know what's going to be coming up and everything. We'll have obviously stuff on the website and everything about this, but, um, anyway, first things first, let's carry on and go through the return of the shadow. So tonight, tonight we're looking at the final chapter in the third phase section. And of course we reach a point where Tolkien is rethinking things again. And, uh, of course, it's not just a point where Tolkien is rethinking things again. It's the same point he rethought things at before. In fact, as Christopher points out, he gets to exactly the same point, right? He, he ends the third phase manuscript in exactly the same spot as if he's following along from the first phase manuscript. And at that moment does another, like, I'm wondering about things and rethinking things. Um, this one, I have to admit, as Christopher admits is a little bit more puzzling really because on the one hand um you know we talked about 
you know, how although, you know, it's easy to kind of tease Tolkien for his penchant to go back and start again instead of carrying on when he's working on, you know, a new work, um, that moment at the end of, you know, where he stopped phase one when they got to Rivendell and him going back and rewriting it, as we've said several times, makes all kinds of sense. It, It was really needed as that story was growing up as it went along. Uh, the second phase, you know, we kind of talked about that when he stopped that one and went back and started revising again. That one was a little bit harder to understand. Um, as uh, though, uh, though, I mean, I guess the the primary thing that we were that we took from that at the beginning of the third phase was, you know, the the sort of the rationale for going back and doing the third phase was not even as much to say I need to work out my ideas and 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 flesh them out consistently from the beginning like he was doing between the first and second, but rather I need a clean manuscript because this thing is a freaking mess and I can't submit this to anybody, right? I mean, no one can can make any sense out of this, so I need to go and I need to make something like a fair manuscript copy of the whole business. And that seems to have been most likely the sort of impetus to go back and start again the third time. This moment now, when he's stopping and doubting, and, 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 and so he's sort of doing two things, right? On the one hand, he's thinking forward, right? What happens after Rivendell? Um, did you catch, by the way, the reference that Christopher gave, quoting one of Tolkien's letters to the publishers at this time, where Tolkien thought that, uh, having gotten to Rivendell, he thought the story was three quarters of the way done, right? Did you, did you see that? It's so charming, isn't it? Um, or again, such a wonderful testimony to how little Tolkien suspected about what was really to come, right? Um, and it's so obvious that still, the like, almost all of the two towers, you know, almost all of what will be books three and four are still completely, like, unknown to him, right? He has no idea. Um, we, we will see later on tonight him getting the first glimmers of the Gondor story, um, but of course Rohan is still not even not even in, in sort of the vaguest uh, of anticipations yet. Um, but anyway, okay, so he, he the, again, the one thing that we see him doing which makes all kinds of sense is having gotten to this point again and now feeling fairly secure about the story to this point that he would carry on, right? Okay, where are we going from here? What is the story? And and him bringing in, you know, his lists of, like, new adventures to do and his thoughts about what's going to happen at the end of the story, and that's super exciting. We're going to look at that. That's going to be awesome. But before we get there, we have to look at the first stuff that he does, which is way more puzzling, really, uh, and that is the way in which he seems to doubt the story that he's already written, right? And those uh, those impulses which he is clearly have, having to kind of chuck it out and and go backwards on stuff that he's already refined and 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 which seems in such a good uh, place. Um, so, yeah, we'll have to. We'll, we'll, I, I want to start off by looking at that. Well, no, not quite. Start off by looking at those. Um, before we even do that, I want to return to the very last slide we were looking at last time. I promised at the end of last week's class that we would start today talking about Treebeard, uh, and I want to do that. Because here I disagree even with the, the, the sort of, well, not nomenclature, that's not the right word, the terminology, with the terminology even that Christopher uses when talking about this. Um, you know, Christopher, in this passage and uh, the, you know, the, the, the references to Treebeard uh, in tonight's reading, Christopher talks about this like this is the, you know, this is the introduction of the character of Treebeard. Um, I disagree with that, and I think there's a really important distinction here to be maintained. I promised I would talk about that, so let's let's go. First, let's just uh, review. Gandalf explaining why he didn't show up in time for the party. 
There are many powers greater than mine for good or evil in the world. I was caught in Fangorn and spent many weary days as a prisoner of the giant Treebeard. It was a desperate, anxious time, for I was hurrying back to the Shire to help you. I had just learned that the horsemen had been sent out. Okay. Um, so, again, can we say, like, this is the introduction to Treebeard? Um, no, this is not the introduction to Treebeard. Um, let me explain what I mean by that. Um, let me make a comparison. Um because it's something I've talked about before. Let's think about uh, Arthur's favorite character, Tevildo, Prince of Cats, right? Um, and again, this is an issue we've discussed before. The role in the story that Tevildo, Prince of Cats, occupies in the tale of Tenuvio in the Book of Lost Tales, Volume 2, is the same position that Thu, who is Sauron, or who is going to develop into Sauron, occupies in the story in the Lay of Lathian and moving forward. Okay, so um, you can. So one way of describing this would be to say Sauron was originally a giant cat, right? That's not true. I don't think that's in any way an accurate way of describing it. Rather, what I would say, what I would say in describing the role of Tevilda, Prince of Cats, is that. The place in the story, which will later be occupied by Sauron, is now being occupied by a giant cat, right? Um, now, this is, I think, a, a parallel situation. Um, but it's not exactly the same, because here we have the same name, right? Treebeard. Um, so I would make another comparison. Here I would compare the Elven King in The Hobbit to Thingol, right? Um you can say Thingol is being recycled in The Hobbit. I've said that many times, and it's kind of true, right? It's, it's, it's the, the concept of Thingol is being... Uh, and, and you can even say, you know, you, one could make the argument, right, um, that the Elven King basically is, is Thingol, or he's, he is, you know, this is... This is um, he, is, he is being copied on Thingol. And the argument I've always made there is, no, yes, it's the concept of a woodland king who's, you know, and, and like even this, the, many of the details of his, uh, you know, who lives in the caves in the middle of the forest with the, with the magical gates and the crossing the bridge, crossing the river and all that stuff. Um, I mean, all those things, of course, yes, very, very, very closely parallel. Does he clearly have Thingol and Menegroth in mind when he is making that? Yeah, I mean, again, it's those concepts he's recycling, but they're not the same. The Elven King is not Thingol, right? Because his story is fundamentally different. Uh, no woodland elf... I don't care if he's a woodland elf king. I don't care if he's a woodland elf king who lives in caves. If he has no fey wife, right? If he's not married to Melian and he doesn't have a daughter, Luthien, he's not Thingol. I mean, it's it's a totally different story. And I think here about the points that Tolkien made in On Fairy Stories, Um when he talks in, about exactly this kind of tendency for people who are discussing folklore and fairy tales, when they'll say that these two stories, which are similar to each other, and they will sort of somewhat sloppily call them the same story. And Tolkien is, is criticizing this. He's, he's making fun of that, to some extent, in unfairy stories. And one of the examples he gives is, uh, uh, is the story of Red Riding Hood, right? And he'll, he'll point to two different versions of the Red Riding Hood story, one in which... 
uh, the wolf is is killed at the end, right? And everybody except the grandmother saved. And uh, uh, and the other in which the wolf eats Red Riding Hood and everybody lives sadly ever after, right? Uh, and, you know, and so basically Tolkien says, like, you know, there, there are people who would say these are the same story, right? Um, and he says, no, like, basically you have to be seriously tone deaf. Like, yes, of course, they're they're similar. Yes, they're 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 obviously connected to each other, but they're not the same story. They're fundamentally different stories, uh, which lead to you know have fundamentally different effects. I would say the same kind of thing here with Treebeard. Um, yes, we have a a giant figure, and of course the the word ent comes from the Anglo-Saxon word for giant. So we have a a giant figure whose name is Treebeard and who lives in Fangorn, right? Um, I consider those similarities no more, I, that's, or rather, no less superficial than the similarities between the two different versions of the Red Riding Hood story, right? Um, so I would say, again, the statement, this is the moment that Treebeard comes into the story, right? This is Treebeard's first introduction to the story, is, if not wrong, I consider it deeply and fundamentally misleading. Because when you say... When Treebeard comes in, you're talking about the Treebeard from The Lord of the Rings. You're talking about the Ent, right? This is not Treebeard the Ent. This is Treebeard the Tree Man, right? That is to say, the giant. And we, we, we were seeing before how the first impulse, right? The, this, you know, the giants were going to be an element. Uh, we saw that way back in the first draft of Sam's conversation with Ted Sandyman, right? Um, and, and specifically the reference to tree man. And we talked about that. This is this clearly seems to be giants. Remember how in the uh, the Arendel stuff where he had the tree men as well, the tree men were paired with pygmies. Right, you got the giants and you got the pygmies. Right, different adventures that he has in these different crazy islands during his during his uh, uh, his his travels. Right, um, so tree men clearly meant giant. Right. Uh, and uh, when Sam is, you know, it's not walking trees that are being seen in the North Farthing. It's a giant that's been seen in the North Farthing. Um, again, giant like Jack the Giant Killer, traditional sort of fairy tale giants like we saw in The Hobbit, remember? The ones, the giants that were throwing rocks um, in, uh, in, in The Hobbit. So, you know, we have even precedent for that even within Tolkien's work itself. So when he says, I spent many weary days as a prisoner of the giant Treebeard. I don't think he means the giant is not an adjective there, right? It's not like a prisoner of Treebeard and that guy is huge, right? That's not what he's saying. He's a prisoner of the giant and this giant's name is Treebeard. Um, you know, he's bearded apparently and he's uh, uh, he's like as big as a tree. He's a tree man, right? And the, clearly the name Treebeard would seem to be in the in the context in which it's being used here is derived from that sort of synonym of giants that he keeps um, he keeps uh, uh, coming back to here. Um, so let's look at uh, the next thing. The, the next passage is really cool. This is a kind of jumping ahead to the little snippet of narrative that he wrote about Treebeard um, that didn't come until today's chapter. Oop. When Frodo heard the voice, he looked up, but he could see nothing through the thick and tangled branches. Suddenly, he felt a quiver in the gnarled tree trunk against which he was leaning, uh, and before he could spring away, he was pushed or kicked forward onto his knees. Picking himself up, he looked at the tree, and even as he did, it took a stride towards him. 
He scrambled out of the way, and a deep rumbling chuckle came down out of the treetop. "'Where are you, little beetle?' said the voice. "'If you don't let me know where you are, you can't blame me for treading on you. And please don't tickle my leg.' "'I can't see any legs,' said Frodo. "'And where are you? you?' "'You must be blind,' said the voice. "'I am here.' "'Who are you?' "'I am Treebeard,' the voice answered. "'If you haven't heard of me before, you ought to have done. "'And anyway, you are in my garden.' "'I can't see any garden,' said Frodo. "'Do you, Do you know what a garden looks like?' "'I have one of my own. "'There are flowers and plants in it and a fence round it, "'and there is nothing of the kind here.' "'Oh, yes, there is. Only you have walked through the fence without noticing it, and you can't see the plants because you are down underneath them by their roots.' It was only then, when Frodo looked closer, that he saw that what he had taken for smooth tree stems were the stalks of gigantic flowers, and what he had thought was the stem of a monstrous oak tree was really a thick, gnarled leg with a root-like foot and many branching toes. Okay. This is really interesting, right? Um, at the beginning, doesn't it sound like that sounds like Treebeard, like the Treebeard we know, like meaner, uh, grumpier, but the Treebeard we know. In fact, it sounds a lot like the scene when Merry and Pippin meet Treebeard in the Two Towers, right? Um, you know, they, uh, the whole, like, they're standing right next to it and they don't realize that he, you know, they think he's mistaken for a tree, right? They don't realize that he's a dude, right? And the reference of, to uh, treading on them and everything. Um, it sounds like he sounds a little entish. Right? Um, so, uh, <laughs> thanks, John. Uh, John likes my, my, my tree beard voice. John, I'm still like just kind of getting over being sick enough to have a, like a slightly deeper voice still than I usually have. So, I'm st- still trying to take advantage of, uh, of uh, the opportunity here. Um, but, um, okay. So, Okay, it sounds like so for, if I just if we had nothing but the first two paragraphs, say, um, no three paragraphs. If we had the first three paragraphs, um, I'd be like, okay, maybe we're seeing a transitional phase here, right? It was giant tree beard before, right? Now he's becoming entish. Now he's a tree, right? I mean, look at that. He looks up at the tree and it takes a stride towards him, right? And his rumbling chuckle comes down from the treetops. It's like the dude's a tree, right? He's not just as, a, a giant as tall as a tree. He's a tree. And this is his garden. And especially there, I'm like, okay, hang on a second now. You are in my garden. And Frodo's like, this isn't a garden. I don't tell. I was ready. I was ready for him to be an ent or ent-like anyway, right? for him to be, uh, uh, to, you know, basically be saying, like, do not, you know, don't you see the forest? Like, this forest is my garden kind of thing, right? Like, where the trees were going to be like, you're, you, your lame garden at home might have, like, flowers and plants and fences, but, like, Fangorn Forest is my garden, right? That's totally where I thought that giant tree beard was going here. But you notice where he actually goes. It's not like that at all the situation becomes it becomes perfectly clear in that last paragraph this is a giant he's not an ant he's a giant this is a jack and the beanstalk situation right frodo turns out to have been mistaken it's not a forest that he's in they're gigantic flowers it's just like jack and the beanstalk when jack climbs up the beanstalk and he's there in giant land and everything is huge 
right? And he doesn't even realize it because he doesn't realize he's in giant land. And he doesn't realize that these could possibly be flowers, right? Um, that moment when he realizes that the tree stems are actually gigantic flowers, it's again perfectly clear. And what he thought was the stem of a monstrous oak tree. It's not a tree at all. It's really a leg. It's his leg, which of uh, this giant's leg, which looks like a tree. And of course, like, granted that the toes are more entish, right? You know, but still, like, it's normal for, like, giants and goblins and things like that to have weird feet. Just ask, ask George MacDonald, right? Um, so, yeah, it's not... So it turns out that he wasn't a tree at all. He's just a giant. Um, a really tall giant because, like, his his whole... His one leg looks like a tree and the whole... And, like, the whole voice coming from the treetops because his head is above so far above the treetops that uh, that Frodo can't even, can, like, can't even see his head, Right? Um, and what Frodo mistook... Because we, we, we can tell that that scale is right. Because what Frodo mistook for regular trees are flowers. Right? Which means that the trees are going to be like knee-high. Right? Or maybe thigh-high on tree beard. Right? So he is a giant on that kind of gigantic scale. Um, and yeah, James Stevens, exactly. With root-like feet. Absolutely. I mean, again, people have weird feet. Right? Goblins have weird feet. Giants can have weird feet. Um... Uh, yeah, I have no problem with his uh, with his feet. Um, Nadia, good. It's it's more like in, in the Empire Strikes Back when the asteroid is. Yeah, exactly. When they land inside the 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 mouth of the alien, that kind of effect. That sort of like I am in giant land. I am you know I I, I misunderstood the context of where I was. Um, it's uh, um, yeah. And Kimber, I I absolutely agree with you. You know, Kimber is you know he's arguing that the giant the giant flowers are. Um, very strange in a Middle Earth context. Um, you know that w- there's nothing else in Middle Earth which is simply impossible in that way. You know, even when we cross into Fairyland, right? Which we do. Like there are several times you cross a boundary into something which is like fairy, right? Lothlorien being the biggest and most obvious example of this. But what you meet inside fairy, these sort of fairy-like places in Middle Earth, um, is um, not things that are, I mean, Malorn trees, which are wonderful, uh, you know, Kimber, as you're pointing out, um, but, but not, you know, completely contrary to real world normal, uh, experience. Um, yeah, yeah, Ben, yeah, he he must be as big as a, a mountain or a hill, but again, that's giants, right? And honestly, Ben, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if the, um, uh, if the giants in uh, um, if the giants in the Hobbit were of similar size, actually, um, so um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So anyway, so this this passage more than, you know it started getting me thinking like we were with ants already, but by the end I think it's perfectly clear we're nowhere near ants yet. So this guy, he's a giant, right? English translation, uh, you know, the Anglo-Saxon translation of which is Ent, and his name is Treebeard, but this is not the dude that we mean. This is not even the precursor of the dude, right? Um, when he decides that he is going, you know, maybe we can in some sense see the germ of the thing, right? You know, with the tr- with the root-like foot and branching toes. Maybe that sort of, uh, sort of shows us, like, the way that Tolkien's mind is, like, beginning to move in that direction, and that he's later going to follow that up. Um, but but this isn't Treebeard. 
um, the character of Treebeard. Because, again, I, I'm i not going to call him the Treebeard that we know until he is an animated tree. Like, that is the essence of Entness. Like, the, the tree-ishness of Ents is, the to, in, my, in my mind, the absolute essential thing about them. Um, and to, to, to call this giant... To say that this giant is the same character, but he's just gonna go, he's gonna go through some changes, right? Is just like saying the two different Red Riding Hood stories are the same story. There's just a little plot deviations between them, right? Uh, again, you can say that, and 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 in saying that, it's not like you're saying something totally nonsensical, because there are lots of interesting similarities between the two different versions of the Red Riding Hood story, just as there are some interesting similarities between this giant and the ant that we will meet later on. But to say this is merely a development from one to the next, you know, a development of, of the same character. To me, that's not even saying anything useful. Um, rather, like saying Sauron is going to come in and he's going to displace Tevildo and take his spot, right? So Treebeard the Ent is going to, is going to, the, the giant Treebeard is going to be discontinued. He, the, this, this guy has no future. This character is a dead-end path, Right? What instead we're going to see is Tolkien's going to develop a new character. And that new character is going to have this name, right? He's going to reuse that name for his new character. But that new character has very little in common, right? The name and the toes. That's pretty much all that the new tree beard is going to have in common with the old tree beard. Um, so that's why I get, it might seem like kind of nitpicking uh, to say, like, well, you shouldn't call it the same character because it's just not exactly the same. But again, it seems to me an important kind of distinction. Um, but um, anyway, um, so... Yeah, exactly, Jonathan. This is not the tree beard you're looking for. Uh, I, I absolutely, I absolutely agree. He differs root and branch, Tom. I think that's exactly that's exactly it. Um, but uh, okay, good. So that, that's that's my little that's my little my little tree beard rant. I actually found I was having a problem this week as I was preparing for class. My problem this week was that I I kept. I found myself going through a really dangerous spate of second-guessing Christopher in his editorial comments. Um, I try to be really careful about that because, like, Christopher knows a hundred times more about this text than I do, easily. And so for me to be like, Christopher, you're obviously wrong about that, is just, like, sort of arrogant on a, on a, on a huge scale. And I was... It, there were a bunch of times when in Christopher's commentary this evening where I was, like... Are am I like? Are you missing something, or am I missing something? Because like he'll say, they're like, I have no idea what this means, and I'm like, uh, I have some suggestions. Actually, it kind of doesn't even seem that hard. And anyway, I, I, I as I've been, I've been having like a little crisis <laughs> this week in in wanting to, uh, you know, kind of like, well, I think I need to sit myself down and maybe fan myself and uh, you know, put a cold compress on my head or something. But then this whole tree beard thing was like, uh pouring oil on the fire, so... Anyhow, um... Uh... Yeah, good. Now, good, Matt, um... Uh, Matt, yeah, I was going to mention that. I'm glad you're bringing me back to that. Matt, Matt Duke says, you know, he thought I was going to head into a different direction. That Treebeard is the beginning of the character of Saruman. Um, yeah, Matt, I actually think that you could say that more easily. Now, of course, that 
is exactly the situation with the Tevildo one, right? Where the role in the narrative that was originally played by this giant tree beard is later going to be played by Saruman the White, right? Um, so there we have another one of those kinds of display, b- displacements. So really, for that reason, I don't think the giant tree beard is really anybody's precursor. Again, he's a he's he's not he's not anybody's ancestor. He's a dead end. Right, but of course we've seen so many times how conservative Tolkien is—that is, how uh, how thrifty Tolkien is with his own writing and his own concepts. Rarely does he come up with something, uh, especially a name that he just chucks out. Right, he's much more likely to double and triple use names uh, like Fingolfin. Remember Fingolfin, the Goblin King in the Hobbit? Do you know about this? That the the name of the the Hobbit or the name of the Goblin, um, who was decapitated by Bolrorer Took in the first draft of the Hobbit, was originally named Fingolfin because it has the golf element in it, and he had that name already. So his tendency, even in a case like that, which is shocking, right? I mean, you think about Fingolfin, and Fingolfin's name never changed. I mean, he was Fingolfin. Um, you know, it, it, before, during, and after Tolkien's writing of that draft of The Hobbit, he's still writing about Fingolf and the Noldor king that we all love, uh, and uh, and and never changing that, never never ditching that, and yet was still was still willing to uh, uh, um, to put um, uh, to to put the. Uh, um, that name on the the goblin king, yeah, yeah, Golfimble, exactly the one who eventually he will invent a new name for him and name him Golfimble. Um, that gets into the first published edition too. He it, he never published the the Fingolfin thing, but it is in his first draft. Like when he had to come up with a name, his first impulse, reuse it, right? Um, and that it seems to me pretty clear. That's what he did. That's what he did with Treebeard, right? Um, but um, yeah, okay. Let's um, let's keep moving. Let's keep moving. Okay. This is the last, this was going to be the last slide last week. So this is from the end of the last chapter, our final appearance of, of, of Odo, which I, I, I was having so much fun with Odo last week. Um, when Frodo goes down to find his friends in a porch of the house, the conversation is retained almost exactly from the original form. Odo takes over from Mary, three cheers for Frodo, Lord of the Ring, and further says, as does Pippin in the Fellowship, uh, you have shown your usual cunning in getting up just in time for a meal. But despite Odo's increased prominence in Frodo's reception... There is no reference to his adventures. Frodo might might surely be expected to make some remark about Odo's extremely perilous and altogether unlooked-for experiences since he had last seen him at the entrance into the old forest, especially since Gandalf had refrained from telling him what had happened on Weathertop and after. Um, yeah, so, anyway, the point... This is all... This is uh, uh, Christopher's commentary, of course. And um, uh, I... I, I, I this is just you, you you can't keep a good hobbit down right i mean odo remember that this is after odo's been killed off right gandalf reports odo missing right odo is missing and presumed dead by gandalf and gandalf goes to rivendell and then they meet gorfindo and they're like we're so sorry to hear about odo's death <laughs> And and uh, uh, and Glorfindel's like, oh yeah, no, he had a hobbit with him. What was he missing? We never heard anything about him being missing. And then they show up, and here he is, and he's like, hey guys, never left. I'm here again, and it's just the five of us once more. Um, and I think uh, it's just uh, it's just it's just kind of awesome. Um, it, uh, it honestly, 
it kind of makes me sad to know that eventually Odo is going to going to go. <laughs> right? I mean, Odo's not going to survive into the published text. We know how this story ends, right? And yet, like, the the, the great valor and perseverance of Odo uh, throughout this whole process really kind of makes me wish uh, it's, it's making me root for the underdog here. Um, but you're right, Nadia. Always will always be with us in our hearts. So that's certainly, that's certainly true. Um... Yeah, but anyway, so it's just, I just, I just, again, the mere fact that Tolkien's, again, thinking about the, <laughs> to, to sort of refrain for a moment from giving Odo, like, personal agency, as if he had personal agency in this, in this sort of decision, but again, just this impulse by Tolkien, right, not only, not only to reverse his decision to kill Odo off, right, but to just write him in so casually here, like, such that Christopher himself is like, you'd think Frodo would have been a little bit more curious here, right? That it might have come up, like, hey, Odo, what the heck? What are you doing here? Um, you know, what happened to you? Where have you been? Um, the fact that this doesn't happen is, to me, a, a, really, uh, um, a really delightful testimony to Tolkien's, like, I like being continually reconciled and re-reconciled to the idea of having Odo in. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Tony Mead thinks there needs to be some Odo fan fiction written. Well, Tony, I think Tolkien's already done that, right? I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's almost like that now. It's, it's, it's beginning to achieve that kind of, like, fan fiction cult popularity uh, for Odo. Um Anyway, okay, all right, on to today's chapter. So there are three things I want to look at. First, I want to look at the beginning. Then I want to pause in the middle and talk about Trotter and uh, what we see about his speculations about him trying to decide who is Trotter, right, and what's Trotter's backstory, because we've been talking about that, and we've seen some suggestions and implications, but he hasn't really worked out too much in detail yet. And then, of course, he's looking at the further adventures and the ending, um, which uh, which are really awesome. So... Um, let's, uh, let's keep going here. Okay. So first we start with the shocking suggestion. So this, again, this section of the chapter, I find really puzzling. Um, why, why does Tolkien do this? So let's see if we can see in order to try to understand the why. And again, we can't get inside Tolkien's head. Again, I'm going to, when I ask why, that's not what I'm asking. What I am asking is what is the pattern here? What pattern emerges from this? What, um, um, what exactly does Tolkien seem to want to do with the beginning? What what is the uh, um, uh, what do these things show us about the story uh, that he is thinking of rewriting? You know the, the 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 direction in which he's thinking of pushing the story here. So, okay, new plot: Bilbo is the hero all through. Merry and Frodo, his companions. This helps with Gollum, though Gollum probably gets new ring in Mordor, or Bilbo just takes a holiday and never returns, and the surprise party is Frodo's, in which case Gandalf is not present to let off fireworks. Okay, so here's the new version with Bilbo as hero. The Lord of the Rings. This begins, It is all most disturbing, and in fact rather alarming, said Bilbo Baggins, and 
Sorry, and the matter is the same as in ancient history, with Sam Shears audible outside, altered only as was necessary, since Gandalf was here speaking to Bilbo, not Frodo, but this text peters out after a couple of sides. So remember, it's all most disturbing and in fact rather alarming. This is at the, the transition at the beginning of the conversation between Frodo and Gandalf in chapter two. Right. Um, the, you remember the part of the conversation where they're all, you know, where Frodo's like, last night you began to tell me some alarming things. And then you stopped saying it would probably freak you out less if I let you think the worst for several hours and then start this conversation again in the morning. Right. Remember, you remember that part of their conversation? So the new suggestion is that's page one of the book. Right. Right there. That sitting down uh, conversation. Now. Um, OK, so on the one hand. That's similar to something we've seen before. Like that conversation, uh, you'll remember that Tolkien was kind of playing around where to put that. And the impulse to put that first is an old one. Remember, it goes way back to right after the Ringwraith showed up the first time and he was working out the whole Ringwraith Ring of Power thing. And he was saying, um, and you know, remember, it started in that conversation with Gildor originally. And then he began drafting this new introduction, right, with the conversation with between Bingo and Gandalf, um, which was going to come first, and then he shifted it around. So that impulse to start with ancient history, you know, with the, shadows of the, with the shadow of the past, this is a, an old impulse. Um, but, uh, okay. Uh, 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 Mr. Raven King, I agree this is a weird suggestion for the direction of the story. Christopher focuses on the fact that here, um, which is, Christopher's focus has the benefit of, in fact, being a fact, right, which is handy, that Tolkien is here entertaining the idea of returning to some of his older conceptions of the story. That's perfectly true, right? Bilbo being the hero all through was one of the possibilities, though kind of actually... No. He was never... Is there a version where Bilbo was in fact the hero all through? There was, like, the one where Bilbo start. I mean, like, in the very first draft of the first chapter, Bilbo was the hero of the long-expected party. But remember, there was still that segue at the end to say, like, I'm telling you all this because uh, this story is going to be about one of Bilbo's descendants, right? Um, it was never going to be Bilbo all the way through. Um, but anyway, even ignoring that technicality, um, yeah, okay, Bilbo, the, also again, Christopher points out that Bilbo vanishing quietly and then Frodo throwing the party um, and leaving afterwards, immediately afterwards. Again, that was a thing, right? That was, that was what draft three Right of uh, of the long, or maybe it was draft two of the long of the long expected party. Um, so, um, so okay, like yes, I see that this is Tolkien toying with the idea of bringing back those older ideas. But what I'm interested in is why? Why would he do that? And again, please remember what I'm asking. When I'm asking why, I'm not asking what was in his mind or what was his psychological motivation. What I'm asking is what direction exactly is he thinking of pushing the story here? Because, I mean, you can say that Bilbo is the hero all through, right? 
But you got to think through, what on earth does that mean? Um, what do you have to do to the story? In what ways would a story, with Bilbo being the hero all the way through, be different from the story that he had already been telling? That, to me, is what is super interesting about this. And even if we just look at the, even if we just look at the second one, right? Uh, which is which is less radical. Bilbo just taking a holiday and never returns, and the surprise party is Frodo's, right? Um, what is let's let's just start with that one because that one is simpler, right? What's the difference? What is the motivation for this change? That is to say, uh, in what direction is this going to push the story compared to the one that we're familiar with? Okay, well, let's think. If Bilbo just takes a holiday, clearly, one thing is we don't get the big portentous departure of Bilbo. And especially thinking about what we saw in the third phase draft in particular, we don't get the choice that... Remember the the kind of apologetics that Tolkien was doing in the narrative, in the conversation between Gandalf and Frodo, sticking up for Bilbo? Like, uh, Bilbo couldn't help it. Don't think that Bilbo was just, like, screwing you over or something, Frodo. Like, don't, 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 don't be upset with, Bil- with, with Bilbo. You remember that bit that was added into the third phase? Because Tolkien seemed to be wrestling with the idea that if Bilbo knew that the ring was dangerous, that it was having an effect on him, that it would have an effect on, on, on Frodo when he handed it over, how do you handle his handing of it over, right? Without thinking less of Bilbo for passing the buck in that way to his, to his nephew. And we, so we saw Tolkien trying to sort of qualify that. Well, that seems to be one effect of this second change. Bilbo just taking a holiday. If he's just taking a holiday, then he doesn't understand the significance. Of, he's not leaving because he like the ring is having an effect on him and he wants to leave it behind. Um, he uh, doesn't suspect what's going on, right? Um, with the ring and everything. It makes Bilbo completely innocent of that stuff. So, okay, I can kind of see that. The shift to making the party... Frodo's party might kind of, to me actually that seems like a, a a less radical shift actually than the other half of that because um, I mean even the, I think that the Bilbo leaving just taking a holiday seems to me to have a bigger impact on the story than making the surprise party Frodo's because um, the only difference there uh, the only difference between Frodo choosing to throw the long expected party and leave the Shire in a spectacular way is the fact that he's supposed to keep it a secret, right? That he's supposed to be stealthy in his departure, and that's not a very stealthy way to depart. But notice that Tolkien has taken that into account, right? By having Gandalf not there at all. So it would seem that the new story is going to have Frodo not acting like a fool, but not understanding, right? Frodo being innocent. In other words, it's not at all clear to me that Frodo is going to get a shadow of the past chapter, especially since it seems like, if anything, that comes in with some of that material anyway, comes in with Bilbo, which would seem to contradict the taking a holiday thing that we were just looking at. I don't know. Um, but no, no, exactly. No, it doesn't, because that's not the version that he's telling there. This is the with Bilbo as hero version of the story. Um, so what was going to happen with the ancient history chapter in the surprise party is Frodo's version of the story. Um, I don't know. Gandalf isn't there. 
right? So maybe they don't have that conversation, or maybe they don't have it yet. Maybe he's going to push that back until when Gandalf finally catches up with him. Maybe they're not going to have it until Rivendell. I don't know, right? Maybe he wants Frodo to be a complete noob when he's on the road, have no idea who these black riders are, right? Um, so that there's no hint. It's just like a fun Hobbit story, right? Is this, you know, Frodo's going to leave the Shire and he thinks and maybe he runs out of money like he does in the in the earlier draft and he thinks it would be a hoot you know to throw this party and and shock and surprise everybody and then they're all laughing and then the, a black rider shows up right and all of a sudden it gets real um, but he still has no idea what the heck this guy is and what's going on and then maybe maybe that's the direction and to, again to me I can see that right um, that doesn't seem to me to be a radical departure uh, from uh uh, from the way that we get it uh, in the published version. But Bilbo being the hero all the way through, that's pretty darn radical, right? Um, uh, maybe. Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe it only seems radical because we're so we've come so used to, even by now in the manuscripts, we've become so used to the Bingo Frodo character. If Bilbo's younger... Right, he can't he can't be seventy one if he's going to be the hero all the way through, right? But if he's not the hero all the way through, then um, he could still be in a similar position. I mean, again, we see him about to have the the ancient history conversation with Gandalf there in that beginning, right? Even with Sam Shears audible outside the window. So Sam is going to be Bilbo's servant, right? So he's going to be following, you know, Mr. Bilbo instead of Mr. Frodo all the way through the book. So even that relationship seems to be retained. Um, what would it change? Well, the only thing it would change is we don't have the handing off of the ring at all. Maybe that was the issue. That seems to me one trend that these things have in common. Um, if I had to pick a thread that connects those two beads, right? the Bilbo the hero all through and the Bilbo just takes a holiday, it would be that. Um, that is to say, Bilbo not being overwhelmed by the ring yet, right? And Bilbo um, wanting to change the dynamics of the handoff of the ring. And of course, the simplest way to do that is eliminate them, right? Don't have him hand off the ring at all. Just have Bilbo not yet affected much, if at all, by the ring, uh, or at least not more than Frodo is at the beginning of the story, and carry on from there with Bilbo, right? Let's not have any handoff. Um, so that's fine. Now, a couple of you are pointing out, as of course Christopher makes a big deal of the fact that earlier on in the writing, Tolkien seemed to be really worried about the fact that he had promised readers that Bilbo lived happily ever after to the end of his days, and those were extraordinarily long, and that if Bilbo becomes the hero all the way through, we've thrown the happy ending straight out the window. Um, Christopher says, and I think he's right about this, like, that doesn't seem to be a big issue, right? That Tolkien seems to be willing to let that go. It meant a lot to him before, but he's this. This would seem to change that policy. I agree, um, but that's okay. I mean, again, remember the whole kind of conceit of the Hobbit from within the frame of the Lord of the Rings is that it's derived from Bilbo's book, right? So, I mean, of course, when Bilbo wrote his book, and he'd already written the there and back again version of his book before these adventures begin, right? Um, basically, the and he lived happily ever after till the end of his days line from The Hobbit becomes not 
a, a sort of objective, authoritative, authorial statement, but rather an expression of optimism on Bilbo's part when he was at that phase of his life. Right? He's come back from his journey, and he thinks, like, well, that's it. I'm settling into retirement now. No more adventures for me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to say I lived happily ever after and, and say the end. But, of course, it's not really the end. Right? So it would be more about the opening up of, uh, of a new story uh, that Bilbo hadn't foreseen, rather than an actual contradiction of something which had been stated with, with authorial, um, uh, you know, auctoritas there. Um, so, uh, yeah, Jennifer, great question. Jennifer says, it looks like he's planning here to make Gollum an active, Gollum an active participant, uh, in the story. Is this new? We ha- I mean, there were hints that Frodo, Frodo slash Bingo was going to meet Gollum in the, in the, the, the conversation between Gandalf and Frodo about Gollum. Um, so it seems to have been on the table, uh, I would say from the beginning, but it, that, that does seem to be. That does seem to be part of things there. Um, yeah. Okay, let's keep going. Another set of notes. Go back to the original idea. Make Frodo or Bingo a more comic character. Bilbo is not overcome by Ring. He very seldom used it. He lived long and then said goodbye, put on his old clothes, and rode off. He would not say where he was going, except that he was going across the river. He had two favorite nephews, Peregrine Boffin and Frodo, written above Falco Baggins. Peregrine was the elder. Peregrine went off and Bilbo was blamed, and after that the young folk were kept away from him, only Falco remained faithful. Bilbo left all his possessions to Falco, who thus inherited with interest all the dislike of the Sackville Bagginses. So here we see him as we see him doing several times in these notes, doubting also the name of Frodo. Now this one I think is easy for us to exaggerate the effect of. Right. I mean, on the one hand, this seems to us uh, a big deal. I mean, we finally, finally got to Frodo from Bingo. Right. We've finally left Bingo behind, and we see him not only contemplating bringing back Bingo on several occasions here uh, in these notes, but also considering moving in an entirely different direction. Right. Uh, ditching Frodo and calling him Faramond. Right. Or Falco. And of course, here for the rest of this little outline, uh, he is Falco uh, all the way through there. Um, so, um, anyway, uh, I, it's, that's, that's an interesting thing. But again, I, I, as I was saying, I think that this seems like a bigger deal to us than it necessarily is. It's a big deal to us because we know what's going to come at the end, right? Uh, we know that it's going to be Frodo. So when he suggests Frodo, uh, that name seems to us inevitable, Right, and so when he's considering changing it back to Bingo or changing it to Falco, it seems like he's fighting fate. Right, it would not have seemed to Tolkien like he was fighting fate. Um, uh, and the name Frodo has been kicking around and shifting about and fading out at various points. So uh, it's not really shocking, I think, that this would uh, that this would happen. Um, but again, notice how we see explicitly here that same thread that we saw in the other ones. Bilbo is not overcome by the ring. He seldom used it. He lived long and then said goodbye, right, put on his old clothes and rode off. Um, so we have Bingo as an innocent passer-on of the ring, uh, n- passing on the ring, having no idea what it was that he was passing on. Um, yeah. Okay, let's keep going. 
The ring begins to have an effect on Falco. He gets restless and plans to go off following Bilbo. His friends are Odo Bolger and Mary Brandybuck. <laughs> Odo, Odo is like uh, I, I'm, I'm tempted to make a. It's like it's like in Prince Caspian, right? Odo's like a badger. He holds on. Uh, anyway, sorry. Okay, his friends are Odo Bolger and Mary Brandybuck. Conversation with Gandalf as in tale. Folko gives the unexpected, read long expected, party and vanished as in original draft of the tale, but bring in black riders. Cut out whole part of Gandalf being supposed to come. Make Gandalf pursue the fugitives since he has found out about black riders. The scene at Crick Hollow will do, but without Odo complication. Make Gandalf looking for Falco. In that case, Gandalf will not be at final party and send Trotter. Find Bilbo at Rivendell. There, Bilbo offers to take up Burden of the Ring, reluctantly, but Gandalf supports Falco in offering to carry it on. Trotter turns out to be Peregrine, who had been to Mordor. Okay, uh, uh, couple things here. Um, all right, uh, yeah, now, so Yana, I wonder, Yana is saying, and, and uh, this is a very sensible thing to say, uh, it seems weird that Tolkien would abandon Sam, he seems so fond of him. Yana, I'm not convinced he has. I'm not convinced he has. Um, I think this might be an instance of, uh, uh, this this might be an alone with his servant moment, right? Um, if you remember, of course, that passage from the Silmarillion, which is uh, so unpopular with Sam Gamgee fans, um, you know, then then Frodo went alone with his servant into the dark land. Um, you know, Sam doesn't even get a mention. He doesn't. He doesn't even get a credit by name, right? In the Silmarillion. Um, so, I think the fact that Sam isn't named here, Yana, does not necessarily convince me that Sam has been been removed from the story. Um, I think that he might be assumed, right? Whichever one of them it is, Bilbo, Frodo, Falco, right? Sam comes in. Um, but uh, uh, so I'm, 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 I'm not convinced that this means I'm cutting Sam. Because remember, Sam, ever since Sam came in, Sam's not been in doubt, right? Who else is coming on? You know, Mary and Odo and Falco and, uh, uh, you know, I, I mean, the, 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 those guys have been in flux, Right, Sam has not been in flux since he came in. So I think when he says his friends are Odo Bulger and Mary Brandon, he's not going to include Sam in that list. Sam isn't his friend. Sam is his servant, right? And so when he says his friends are Odo Bulger and Mary Brandybuck, he means that's the cast, right? Those are the hobbits that are going to be going along with him. So we're going to get we're going to get Fro- or Falco, of course, in this, we're not Frodo anymore. We're at Falco. We get Falco, Odo, Mary, and I think probably Sam. I don't see any reason to think that Sam isn't necessary. You know, he doesn't say it. But I don't think he... I, I'm not sure he has to say it. I certainly don't take this as, as clear, a clear indication that he's planning to cut Sam. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. Yana was just saying that he says that those are his friends, not his companions. Exactly, exactly. Um, uh, good, okay. So, um, what else do you... Uh, um, what else do you notice here? Oh, yeah. Um, uh, Nancy, the business with Trotter, right? Um, send Trotter. Remember, these are just jottings of notes to himself, right? Which means there's a lot that's going to be elliptical here. That is a phrase which 
is going to convey way more to him than is going to be clearly expressed. It does sound like he's saying, so Gandalf is not going to be at the party and send, make Gandalf looking for Falco and send Trotter. I don't think that necessarily means send him to the party. I think it means that he's going to be sending Trotter after them. So in other words, I think he's saying when Trot, when they meet Trotter in Bree, the story should be that Gandalf sent Trotter to find them. So this should be a question of like Trotter succeeding in the task Gandalf set him to find them, right? So that the reaction upon Trotter meeting them in Bree will now be, oh, you know, I'm so glad I found you, right? Gandalf told me to look for you and I've been looking everywhere and I finally found you, right? Um, that's how I take that. I would be wrong. It could be that Trotter shows up at the party, um, but I don't, but I don't think so. Um, uh, yeah, now, uh, um, Trotter going to Mordor, right? Um, now keep in, now be careful. Uh, some of you have already called Peregrine here. Peregrine, Boffin, Pippin. Is he? I don't think he is, right? This isn't Pippin. This is not Pippin. This is Trotter, right? Um, this is not Pippin Took. This is not Peregrine. Again, same name, right? That's the name. He, you know, so we've seen, in a sense, with Pippin Took, right? We have the character, and we have now, now we have the name, right? Remember before, we had pretty much the whole character, but not the name, nor the background, right? But Falco, Falco Took, wasn't he a Took? In, and I'm doubting myself. Falco Took in Phase 3, right? The, 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 the last one, right? Who is like the combination of Frodo Took and, and Odo, right? Got both of their lines. Um, and we were looking at how that, how that got worked out. And as Christopher said in that earlier chapter... At this point, Falco has become Pippin in all but name, right? And now here's the name, but the name is attached to a different character, right? So we've got the the Falco, not this Falco, but the old Falco, right? Was was Pippin's all of Pippin's lines and m- much of Pippin's character, though not his family background. And now we have his name and even his dad's name, even Peregrine, son of Paladin, right? Um, but they're not yet Tooks, and they're not yet attached to this to, to this character. So again, there I think is clearly a question of name recycling. Peregrine Boffin, who becomes Trotter, is not Pippin, right? He's not even the only thing he has in common with Pippin is the name. It's it's. But again, that's a that's a name recycle. That seems to me, that seems to me pretty clear. Taking Trotter to Mordor, though, we can see where this came from. Right, we've been looking at that scene a couple times now, where Trotter complains of the Black Riders giving him the creeps. Um, from the first phase, we had Trotter doing his PTSD thing when we're talking about the the Black Riders. He has to have had some experience with them, and so now here finally we get an indication of uh, of what happened to poor Trotter. Right? Why is Trotter, um, you know, his face become a mask of pain when he thinks about the ringwraiths. Well, because he was, he's been to Mordor, apparently, and presumably has had some uh, unpleasant experiences there, as one can imagine one would in Mordor. Um, exactly, Ben, that he was tortured there. Yeah, exactly. Um, that seems very likely, that he was captured and tortured in some, in some way. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, see, Arthur, yes, exactly. Um, we're, 
it wasn't in this class. <laughs> I gotta say, I will be relieved when we in this class move on to the Treason of Isengard, uh, and the two classes I'm teaching on back-to-back nights cease going over exactly the same chapters because my brain, I am having a really hard time keeping straight. Like, was it in this class that we talked about this? I believe that it was in my Tuesday night class when we were talking about the name Peregrine um, and how interesting it is that uh, he was... Yes, no, it was. It definitely was on Tuesday um, that we were talking about this, that Peregrine's name means pilgrim, means wanderer. Um, and it seems like an odd kind of name for Pippin Took, right? Well, notice it's not an odd name, and it's a perfect name for Trotter, right? Yes, he's a peregrine. Uh, he is. A, he's a pilgrim. He's a wanderer. Um, uh, he's a traveler. Um, yeah. So so great. Okay. So that makes sense. So interestingly, therefore, when that name gets lifted off of Trotter, when Trotter is no more, and that name is lifted off of Trotter and put upon uh, uh, Falco Took, right? When that fourth character finally gets a, um, finally gets a, 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 a the name that he's going to keep forever. Um, it no longer fits him as well, right? It's recycled, but it still kind of bears the memory of the character to which it was originally applied, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, Tom. Not a wanderer who is lost, just like a pilgrim isn't lost, or at least you hope he's not lost, right? Exactly. He's, he, he's, got a de- he's wandering, but he's got a destination, right? Uh, even if he's not always in a hurry to get there, you know, it's not, a, it's not making a beeline. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's because it, when you're on pilgrimage, it's about the journey too, not just about the destination. But you do have a destination, uh, and you're not, uh, you're not, you're not lost. Um, anyway, okay. Um, what else? Was, oh yeah, Gandalf. Okay, so um, cutting out the part of Gandalf being supposed to come. Uh, this, too, seems to me like an interesting and kind of sensible um, revision idea, right? Remember, we, we saw in the first draft, in the first phase, um, we had a problem with the fact that Gandalf was there, right? You know, and he didn't know that anything was wrong, and he was, you know, with the, the whole push-along thing, right? And Tolkien addresses this in the second and third phase, by having Gandalf absent, right? So if Gandalf doesn't, and then he's desperately trying to catch up with him, and then he's actually leading the Black Riders on with the whole fake Baggins thing, right? With the valiant decoy work of Odo, um, which is clearly the Odo complication that he's referring to here, the fact that Gandalf has Odo and is and is, is, is doing a mock Baggins thing. Um, but anyway, so... Um, uh, Simpler. This is one step simpler, right? If Gandalf, instead of saying Gandalf wanders off for a not exactly well-known reason and then just doesn't come back for an even lesser well-known reason, right? Instead of doing that, if we just have him never there, right? Um, He comes back and finds to his horror that Frodo has left. Um, And remember, this this seems to be in line with the suggestion that he made in in that first shocking section about um, 
Frodo just basically being a, being a, a just completely unknown, right? That, that he has no idea what's going on at all. Um, that he's being hunted, that he has anything to worry about, that the ring is a big deal, right? He, you know, he's just uh, uh, he's just wandering, and Gandalf is desperately trying to tell him what's going on. That's interesting. I mean, again, it there's it creates some problems. Right, because uh, then we get right back to the problem that Tolkien had at the very beginning. Why wouldn't Frodo turn on the ring when the Black Riders show up? Right. Um, so that 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 question kind of comes in again, pretty big uh, when we get here. Um, and here we can see most clearly the changes that he's making with Bilbo. Right. Less emphasis on longevity caused by ring until the story has progressed. Important. Neither Bilbo nor Gandalf, must know much about the ring when Bilbo departs. Bilbo's motive is simply tiredness, an unexplained restlessness, and longing to see Rivendell again. But that, but that is not said. Finding him at Rivendell must be a surprise. B. Gandalf does not tell Frodo to leave the Shire, only mere hint that, that the Lord may look for the Shire. The plan for leaving was entirely Frodo's. Dreams or some other cause, added restlessness, have made him decide to go journeying, to find cracks of doom, after seeking counsel of Elrond, Gandalf is simply trying to find them, and is desperately upset when he discovers Frodo has left Hobbiton. Odo must be cut out or altered, blended with Falco, and go with Frodo on his ride. Only Meriadoc goes ahead. Um, the blended with Falco thing is beautiful, right? So, remember, Falco is the character who already is a blending of Odo and Frodo took, right? Um when he says that he's got to blend Folco with Odo again, we're going to get now a double dose of Odo uh, in Folco. That's because remember Folco has already he's he's now he now has an identity the old Odo identity the old role that Odo played in the crossing of the Shire with Bingo and Sam that's been uh, merged into into Folco right. So now we have Folco took the companion of Frodo. Uh, 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 and Mary, though again, Mary doesn't cross with him, uh, and Sam. But now we, we, of course, but we still have Odo because he keeps popping back up. Uh, so the we have the new Odo, who is now the decoy Baggins, and the one who gets left behind and who ends up serving as a decoy. Right, so he's gonna he's gonna either cut Odo or notice how he's not even any confident anymore that he can cut Odo. Right, Odo must be cut out or altered. Right, right? notice he's already compromising with himself. Like I know when it comes to it, I'm not gonna have the fortitude to cut Odo. So I've got a plan B already worked out. Right. Um, so the blending, I think, there is the two roles. The role of the companion who walks with them across the Shire and the role of the one who stays behind, right? Um, those, I think, are the two the two things that he's talking about uh, blending, <laughs> yes. Tom Hillman says, Odo regenerates more than the doctor does. Uh, yeah, so true, so true. Um, okay, good. So notice, so here, the idea of Frodo leaving... With you know, this is a really interesting version of this story, right? That uh, Frodo has departed on his own, right? But we already have had the ancient history chapter. So Gandalf has told him the ancient history chapter. He's just decided on his own, like, this is the best thing to do. I'm going to go off and find the cracks of doom. And then Gandalf comes back and is like, what? He's gone. I wanted to tell him about the Black Riders. Um, and <clears throat> that's um, really interesting. 
right? Because again, this this doesn't have Gandalf be like, I'm going to go wander off for no reason. Instead, it has him coming in desperately trying to give good advice, right? Trying to, to, to help and even to rescue Frodo, um, but thwarted by Frodo's own decisiveness, right? Um, that he's going he's gonna to just go ahead and set out, right? Without Gandalf. Um, notice, remember the original name of chapter 3? was delays are dangerous in, in, in the third phase, right? Um, so now it's like delays are dangerous, but apparently <laughs> leaving early is dangerous too. So, uh, uh, you know, non-punctuality is dangerous, I guess, is, uh, is sort of the new, the new concept here. Um, Jennifer, great question. Jennifer says the ring seems to be causing the restlessness, but is it also causing Frodo's dreams? Um... Possibly. Possibly. I don't know. I don't know. Um, the reference to the dreams, Jennifer, I agree, is a really fascinating question because um, notice the prominent role that Frodo's dreams have here. I mean, one of the things that I argue going through, I think paying close attention to the dreams, I think the dreams are really important in The Fellowship of the Ring. Uh and this certainly suggests, Jennifer, right, that the dreams have a, a great... You know, if if in a summary of the first few chapters this short, he's going to single out the dreams as a possible mechanism for, you know, why the entire, you know, sort of journey gets begun, right, that's a pretty big role that he's contemplating for the dreams. So he, too, clearly felt that them sort of fitting this role uh, would... The dreams, that is, would work fine. Um, does it... Is it possible that it's the ring deceiving him? Well, you can't disprove it, certainly, from that sentence. I mean, dreams or some other cause, restlessness, have made him decide to go journeying. Um, could this be... Could these be sort of dreams that are steering him, you know, wise dreams, you know, uh, messages he's getting from the Valar or whatever uh, in his dreams? Um, or is could it be, you know, fantasies that are, you know, false fantasies inspired by... Um, um, by by the ring, that sentence will bear either reading. I mean, you can't say otherwise. I think about that. Um, I still certainly tend to think not just because of the way that they're described in the in the even in the drafts that we've seen. I don't think they they sound like the ring. Um, but uh, but again, I you, you you can't really rule it out here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, Brandon, you're right that we do get prophetic dreams from Bilbo and the Hobbit. Um, even Smaug gets a prophetic dream in a sense. Um, well, no, but Bilbo does have a prophetic dream pre-ring. Uh, the dream that he has of the goblin crack opening and the goblin... That's immediately before he finds the ring. So he does have a, a prophetic dream, uh, Bilbo does, prior to finding the ring. So, you know... Okay, anyway, back to Trotter. In that case, alteration of the plot at Bree. Who is Trotter? A ranger or a hobbit? Peregrine? If Gandalf is only looking for Frodo, Trotter will have to be old associate. Thus is a hobbit make... Thus if a hobbit, sorry. Thus if a hobbit, make him one who went off under Gandalf's influence. CF Introduction to Hobbit. 
after Bilbo's little escapade with Gandalf, after G- Bilbo's little escapade, Gandalf was little seen, and only one disappearance was recorded during many years. This was the curious case of Peregrine Boffin. Since he was a close relation of Bilbo's, Bilbo was blamed for putting notions into the boy's head with his silly fairy stories, and visits of the young to Bag End were discouraged by many of the elders in spite of Bilbo's generosity. But he had several faithful young friends. The chief of these was Frodo, Bilbo's cousin. Okay. So... This, of course, is not a new idea at all, right? I mean, this is an old idea. Of course, we saw earlier on in his last set of notes and wonderings, he was contemplating the idea of having Trotter turn out to be Bilbo, um, but he didn't seem at all confident in that or stick with that idea for very long. Uh, instead, he was going to be what Fosco took, right? He was going to be one of the, uh, you know, a similar sort of a parallel character, a, uh, uh, a, 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 a relation of Bilbo's who... Um, you know, one of those tooks who goes off into the blue on mad adventures, right? Um, under Gandalf's influence, as is referred to in chapter one of The Hobbit. Um, and uh, uh, so that that's that's and and uh, and but a relative, right, of uh, of Frodo's. So those lines in Bree where Frodo thinks he looks kind of weird, uh, kind of uh, weirdly familiar, right, or even f- you know. Uh, familiar in a literal sense, right? That he like he's family. Turns out to be true. He's a cousin, right? He's 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 a took. Um, but uh, yeah, so um, so this seems to really just be him fleshing out the old idea with a new and much cooler name, right? Better than Fosco took is Peregrine Boffin, right? Again, the Peregrine thing is really neat. The whole the whole pilgrimage wanderer business. Um, but of course, notice another interesting thing here. Um, who is Trotter? A ranger or a hobbit? Notice what happened there? Right? We were looking last time at the different possibility, the different ways in which to interpret the concept of ranger, right? Still having, you know, are they hobbits? You know, are rangers hobbits? Are hobbits rangers? Are hobbits ranger like? Right? Remember all that stuff? Um, this seems like a really, a, a small but a fairly clear little point about that, right? Is he a ranger, or is he a hobbit? Well, again, apparently, rangers are not hobbits, right? Those are two exclusive categories. So um, he seems to be settling on the idea of the rangers being human um, and the hobbits not being uh, not being rangers, though, again, presumably they could be mistaken for them or like rangers, but not actually rangers. Does this mean he has definitely decided that rangers are certainly the uh, descendants of the old kings of Numenor? Not necessarily, but uh, um, but we seem to have moved definitively away from rangers as that other subset of hobbits to be poised against the Shire hobbits on the one side, right? No, no accounting for east and west, as Butterbur says. That idea of the west in or the east in question being the rangers, uh, uh, the Hobbit rangers, right? That 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 seems to be that seems to be off the table. Uh, more, we get a full full prose version of the story of Peregrine Buffin. He may be peculiar, but he does no harm, said the younger folk, but not all of his more important relatives agreed. They were suspicious of his influence on their children, and especially of their sons meeting Gandalf at his house. Of course, Bilbo we're talking about. Their suspicions were much increased by the unfortunate affair of Peregrine Buffin. Peregrine was the grandson of Bilbo's mother's second sister, Donamira Took. 
He was a mere babe, five years old, when Bilbo came back from his journey, but he grew up a dark-haired and, for a hobbit, a lanky lad, very much more of a took than a boffin. He was always trotting round to Hobbiton, for his father, Paladin Boffin, lived at Northope, only a mile or two behind the hill. When Peregrine began to talk about mountains and dwarves and forests and wolves, Paladin became alarmed, and finally forbade his son to go near Bag End and shut his door on Bilbo. Bilbo took this to heart, for he was extremely fond of Peregrine, but he did nothing to encourage him to visit Bag End secretly. Peregrine then ran away from home and was found wandering about half-starved up on the moors of the North Farthing. Finally, the day after he came of age, in the spring of Bilbo's 80th year, he disappeared and was never found in spite of a search all over the Shire. Okay. Um, here we have Bilbo influencing the younger generation. Remember, that's been a thing, uh, you know, from pretty close to the beginning. The idea, remember Bilbo encouraging some of his nephews and cousins, right? And that Frodo was the, the most encouraged of the lot. Um, this is, of course, that same idea, but that same idea now taken sort of to its logical extreme. So we get the, we get the reference to those Tooks uh, going off into the blue for mad adventures under the influence of Gandalf in The Hobbit, and those ideas of Bilbo uh, influencing the younger generation of Hobbits into a much more adventurous temperament. And so we kind of combine these two things into the unfortunate uh, affair of Peregrine Buffin. Um, and... Uh, Notice how Bilbo is, um, the, how, how the narrator emphasizes that Bilbo's intentions towards Peregrine are not only good, like benevolent towards him, but also honorable by his father, right? Um, he didn't encourage Peregrine to visit Bag End secretly, right? He didn't, he, 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 he tried to suggest that Peregrine honor his father's wishes, even though Bilbo took it to heart, which means he was really upset, he was really offended um, um, by it. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting contrast, Carita, right? Carita says, you destroy the ring, and you get pretty golden-haired babies in the Shire, right? Kill a dragon, and you get a dark-haired skinny kid with dangerous interests. Yeah, exactly. Next thing you know, you've got people starving, you know, half-starved up on the moors of the North Farthing. So, yeah, uh, yeah clearly, clearly, we, we, we've, got a, we've got a difference here. Um, this is the setup for Trotter. So, to me, what's really fascinating here is that notice the direction, again, Think about the why. Like why? Why? What is the effect of the backstory of Trotter that's being developed here? How does this influence the story? The main way that it influences the story that I can see is that we have established Peregrine Boffin as a direct parallel to Frodo, right? So when Frodo meets Trotter in Bree, this is him kind of meeting his double. Or I mean, there's a bit of a um, not exactly there, but for the grace of God go I kind of thing. Um, because it's not to say Peregrine hasn't had a bad life. I mean, he had a, that Mordor incident, right? But that could happen to anybody. Um, but there's a sense in which, like, Peregrine is that um, Frodo was encouraged by, you know, Peregrine was encouraged by Bilbo. Frodo was encouraged by Bilbo. Peregrine has embraced a life of adventure. Frodo is now embracing a life of adventure. 
though under different circumstances and for a very different reason, right? Um, so the way in which the two of them kind of play off each other and parallel each other um, establishes Peregrine as a really interesting kind of foil for Frodo here in going off into his life of exile. Um, so that's that's neat. I think that that's interesting. Um, and uh, yeah, James, I agree. James Stevens points out that everybody seems to leave the Shire on their birthdays, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Jennifer says that Peregrine is a look into Frodo's potential future, not a very pleasant look. I agree, Jennifer, but I would also point out not a terrible look either, right? Trotter's not unhappy. Uh, he's had some rough experiences, right? But uh, um, but he's not he doesn't he's not miserable, right? He's not a broken down, pitiful, miserable hobbit. Um, uh, so I think that there's potentially some encouragement there. I mean, in fact, it's, it's really sort of the ambivalence of Trotter Peregrine as a parallel, which is to me so fascinating, right? I mean, so is this a cautionary tale or not? The other hobbits think it is, but is it really? Um, in fact, when we meet Trotter, the fact that he has lived this, I mean, it's, it's a jolly good thing for Frodo and for the, for the preservation of the ring and the future of Middle-earth, that there was such an adventurous hobbit at hand who could guide them to Weathertop and help to protect them there and, and get them all the way to Rivendell, right? I mean, they never would have made it without Trotter. So, um, so, uh, uh, you know, this, this, this obviously is a useful thing. Um, and I agree, James Liebach says that, uh, you know, thinking about Peregrine being corrupted and his father worrying about him, he says, you know, there, but for the grace of the Valar goes Sam. Um, it's, uh, this is why Gaff, the gaffer hoped that no harm would come. James, I was thinking the same thing about those words of the gaffer. Um, you know, meaning no harm, mark you, and I hope no, and I hope no harm comes of it, right? That is of Sam learning his letters. Yeah, look what can happen. See, literacy could lead to a life as a as a vagabond. You just never know. Um, all right, let's look at what's going to happen now. So, okay, we we've, we've made it to Rivendell. We're three quarters of the way through this story, right? Everybody knows that. What's going to happen in the last twenty five percent of the Lord of the Rings? Well, here's one suggestion. Turning now to those papers dated August 1939 that are concerned with larger projections of the story to come after the sojourn in Rivendell, there is first a suggestion that a dragon should come to the Shire, and that by its coming the hobbits should be led to show that they are made of sterner stuff, and the Frodo and that Frodo Bingo should actually come near the end of his money. Now it was dragon gold. He is lured. Um, I, I don't understand this exactly. Um, I have a hard time following this. I get that we want to bring an invasion of dragons to the Shire. I mean, I'm a little startled that we're actually talking about doing that in cold prose rather than just in, in uh, you know, Frodo's uh, uh, <laughs> sort of fantasy life, right? Um, but, uh, um, yeah... <laughs> Yeah, exactly, Arthur. Be like, there's only one dragon in Bywater, and it's currently destroying the populace, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, it really changes the dynamics of things, doesn't it? Um, the idea of a dragon invasion is interesting. Um, uh, you know, would it do the hobbits some good? We would show that they're made of sterner stuff? Yeah. But I don't understand. I find, like, again, when I try to ask the questions that we've been asking, right? Like, okay, if we do this... If we go this direction with the story, what kind of story does that make it, right? How does that, you know, can we kind of map out what is the sort of, you know, what are the themes and interests of a story that goes in this direction? 
I, I don't get it. I don't get it at all. Uh, let's, um, let's ignore the last two lines of that paragraph for a second. They get to Rivendell. They're carrying the ring. They get to Rivendell. They get to Rivendell, and after this, they discover that a dragon has invaded the Shire. Well, now what? Do they go back and try to kill the dragon or drive it away? Uh, is that the story? Is this a dragon story now? So it's like The Hobbit again? Going to be a dragon story? Except instead of going to invade the dragon's home, the dragon is invading your home? I mean, that's kind of a fun parallel, right? I can see... I mean, if that were the plan... And remember, a dragon was kind of briefly on the table back when Tolkien was doing his initial... Uh, brainstorming about what could happen in the story. Um, but um, I I don't see how it fits with the ring story. So we've got this ring of power. We need to take it to the cracks of doom. We finally have established that by the end of the third phase. right? We've got to get the ring destroyed. It's not yet definite that Frodo's going to be the one doing it. right? He's not officially signed up for that yet, but um, we know that there's got to be We've, there's, there's a fiery mountain, and we've got to take the ring to the fiery mountain, right? So what? Is the dragon a side quest? Is it what happens at the end? Are we thinking about, like, so they go to the fiery mountain and then come back home to the Shire, and they're like, well, I'm back, right? And there's a dragon in there in the Shire. Maybe. Maybe that's the story. I don't really know. Um, that kind of makes some sense, I guess. And at least that's not going to be totally diverting, Um the story away from the cracks of doom, which seem kind of important. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, the last two lines, though, I don't get it all. Okay, so Frodo should actually come near the end of his money. Now it was dragon gold. He is lured. What? I mean, again, I remember when we were talking about that at the very beginning, before he'd thought of the ring idea. When he was trying to figure out, like, why does this adventure start? Why do the hobbits leave the Shire in the first place and go off on a second adventure? And the answer is, hey, it's a treasure hunt again, right? Their treasure runs out. They become poor. He sells Bagander, gives it away, in fact. And they head off for adventure trying to find more gold. And maybe the dragon sickness that he has that leads him to want more gold is connected with the ring, and maybe it's not, right? That was out there from the beginning. But we've moved past that, right? We already have some very good reasons to leave the Shire now. Namely, you know, the Lord of the Rings is coming after you with his black riders in order to recover his ring of power. So, like, we've already got that. He is lured by gold? Because it's dragon gold? Now it was dragon gold? Now after the dragon returned? Or now we're going to decide that it's dragon gold instead of what? Took gold from his grandma? Um, and he's lured okay, lured by gold? By dragons? By the ring. I have no idea. Who is luring whom to do what in that last sentence? So that uh, this is certainly one of those moments where I find this um, this paragraph to be rather opaque. Stephen is asking, is he referring uh, to Frodo or the dragon? That's an excellent question, Stephen. I was wondering that too. Maybe the dragon is being lured. Maybe the ring is luring the dragon? 
That would be cool. I would tend to think he would say it instead of he if it were the dragon, but maybe not. Maybe maybe, maybe not. Yeah, Carson was just suggesting a similar thing there. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, James, exactly. James says, James Lieback says, uh, if the outcome of Dragons Invade the Shire is Frodo runs out of money, that seems kind of anticlimactic. Exactly. That's one of the problems I have with it. Um Maybe this is why they leave before Gandalf gets there, James Stevens says. What, because dragons invade? It's a pretty good reason to leave, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Kimber's wondering if there's a dragon at the cracks of doom. Uh, maybe. Maybe. Um... Yeah, I don't know. Um, ben is wondering if maybe they could destroy the ring with dragon fire. Now, that's an interesting suggestion, Ben, right? Because we've gotten the cracks of doom a couple times, right? We've gotten the fiery mountain, but that's not so indelibly fixed in the story that that couldn't be shifted, right? Maybe a dragon invades the Shire, and they're like, okay, guys, look, two birds with one stone. On the one hand, we've got a dragon... Because uh, the bad news is a dragon is invading the Shire, and that's bad for the Shire folk. But the good news is a dragon has invaded the a dragon has conveniently come to the Shire, and we have uses for a dragon, namely in melting the ring. Uh, so let's go back and we'll drive him. We'll first contrive a way for him to destroy the ring. Then we'll drive off the dragon, and everybody lives happily ever after. Right? That's um, possible. That's possible. Um, so, okay, you know, I can, I can, uh, I can see that happening. Um, but again, I don't understand about the coming to the end of his money business and the luring. Um, again, unless it, if it's the dragon luring, I agree with you guys that that makes more sense than, I mean, it's easier to explain anyway than Frodo's being lured by gold or whatever. Um, possibly, possibly, um, uh, yeah. Okay. That suggestion doesn't last that long, though. Following these notes on the same page is a brief list of narrative elements that might uh, enter much further on. Island in sea. Take Frodo there in end. Radagast? Battle is raging far off between armies of elves and men versus the Lord. Adventures, stone men. With the first of these, CF the note given on page 41, Elrond tells him, Bilbo, of an island, etc. The reference to the battle raging probably belongs to the end of the story, when the ring goes into the crack of doom. Most interesting is the last item here. A note by my father, found with the, with the LR papers, states that he looked through at least some of the material in 1964. And it was very probably at that time that he scrawled against the words, Adventures, Stone Men... Thought of as just an adventure, the whole of the matter of Gondor, Stoneland, grew from this note. Aragorn, still called Trotter, had no connection with it then, and was at first conceived as one of the hobbits that had wanderlust. Okay, so again, this is Tolkien looking back on this from, uh, what, 15 years later? 25 years later. Um, yeah, 25 years later. Uh, 
Um, so, okay. The whole matter of Gondor grew from this note, he says. Adventures, stone men. Um, that is to say, men of Gondor. Probably. Um, I wonder. First of all, let me make a suggestion. So, hang on. I want to play with something here. Okay. So, if um, you're talking, you've got these notes, right? This line says, Battle is raging far off between armies of elves and men versus lord. And this one is, Adventures, Stone Men. And you've written next to it, right? Um, you've written next to Adventures, Stone Men, as, as he says, right? You know, thought of as, right? You know, so, blah, you know, you're right, and you're Tolkien, and so your handwriting looks just like this, right? And it's on, it's on this line, and, you know, maybe down here, too. This is actually more legible than some of Tolkien's writing, right? Um, uh, my question is, is this a note just on this, or is this a note also on this, right? Like, that is to say, what is right above it, um, and not just what's right next to it. Because, obviously, the battle raging far off between armies of elves and men versus the Lord is a very Gondorian plotline, right? Um, the Stone Man, I mean, his his own memory of this later on, right? Uh, the, the Gondor as Stoneland, right? Uh, definitely suggests that you know the stone men thing is 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 but but I I uh, I'm thinking that there might be a you know maybe he hasn't drawn this connection yet right maybe he hasn't decided that the stone men are going to be in the battle raging against the Lord right against Sauron against the Lord of the Rings um, James Stevens the stone giants were my first thought too when he said adventure stone man I mean if we just had this line without this gloss 25 years later um, maybe I mean that's that's definitely what I would be thinking right but I'm willing to believe you know that he's you know when he said stone men he doesn't mean literally stone men he means uh, any more than his tree men are literally tree men right they're men that are as tall as trees these are uh, men that are that are as tough as stone and that, that you know their kingdom is named you know the kingdom of stone i.e. Gondor um but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, no, exactly, Brian. Brian says just because the men of Gondor grew from this note doesn't mean he had any concept of the kingdom of Gondor when he wrote it. No, no, even he doesn't, isn't, isn't claiming that, of course. Um, but um, this is another one of those places in here where I was, like, not 100% sure that I agreed with Christopher, which, again, kind of bothers me. Uh... Here, the the reference to the battle raging probably belongs to the end of the story when the ring goes into the crack of doom. Yes, probably. Um, 
I mean, that's when they would encounter it, right? Um, the significance of that seems relatively clear. Um, battle raging far off between the armies of elves and men versus the Lord of the Rings. That sounds like a familiar story, doesn't it? Right? We've heard that before. That's the Last Alliance. So the Last Alliance is going to become the penultimate alliance, right? It turns out, because we're going to have another one, I guess. It sounds like he's entertaining the idea of recapitulating the Last Alliance, and we're going to have an army of elves and men besieging Mordor. So it's in, so. Does this mean that there is like wild? So here's Frodo in Rivendell trying to figure out what to do next. Are they going to hear rumors that there's a battle raging off far off between the elves? And like, meanwhile, like it turns out when they get to Rivendell, they discover, hey, there's like another last alliance, like the really last alliance that's going on now. And they've assaulted Mordor. So uh, watch out for that when you head down into them. Or is it that like they get there at the end and they find like, golly, look, the actual last alliance of elves and men is uh, is currently fighting against the Lord of the Rings. Um, I'm not sure you know, that that would, uh, uh, you know, that doesn't necessarily how it's, uh, how it, how, how he's imagining it happening, but, um, uh, either way, I think that that would work. But I, so I, we can here clearly see the seeds of the, uh, of the Gondor story, right? That there is going to be men who are going to be standing up against Sauron, right? And there's going to be battle raging. When you bring the ring down, you're going to be bringing the ring into the middle of, battle and even the assault, even an assault on Mordor, right? Um, the, uh, the reference to, um, um, yeah, James Stephen says, is this meant to mean there is war going on in far off lands at the beginning of the Frodo ring story? Yeah, I kind of think it might be, well, for two things there. First of all, remember we got rumors that there was fighting in distant lands, right? We already, we, we've already kind of heard about it. Is just kind of fleshing out those rumors. Secondly, uh, anyone remember how long the last alliance, you know, the old last, the, the penultimate alliance now, right? Anyone remember how long they besieged Mordor? Plenty long for Frodo to get all the way from the Shire down there and them still to be doing it when we get there, right? Exactly. Seven years. You guys are so good. They, they besieged Mordor for seven years. So... Yeah, no problem. It could be, it, you know, be the a rumor that Frodo heard five years ago, and it's still happening when they get down there, right? So, uh, no worries, no worries about that. Um, the reference to Radagast—that's fun, isn't it? Right? Radagast, of course, is there. Is there, and he gets a reference there in the Hobbit. He's the only other wizard that's named by Gandalf as one of his order. There's a bunch of white wizards apparently kicking around who band together to fight off the necromancer, that deviant from their order or whatever, who um, was doing unspeakable things with dead people in the south of Mirkwood. Um, but there's only one of them he names. That's Radagast. So in this kind of list, Radagast makes a lot of sense, right? Hey, okay, I'm looking. Do I have any material I can work with? Is there somebody that they could meet? Or Hey, Radagast, right? Um, my own uh, instinct, and this is totally non-scientific because we have literally nothing to go on but that one word there. Um, you know, one sort of asks, well, why, why don't they meet? Right? What happened to the Radagast idea? That would have been fun, right? Um, honestly, my suspicion is that Galadriel replaces Radagast. Um, you think about where Radagast was, right? Radagast was uh, his, his place 
was in Mirkwood, um, on the on the, the the western edges of Mirkwood, right? Not too far from Bjorn. That's why Gandalf brings up his name to Bjorn, which is the context in which he's mentioned. Um, so um, Brian is suggesting that maybe Radagast becomes Saruman. It's the geography, Brian, that makes me think that uh, you know so. When they cross over the Misty Mountains and they're in that general region, right to the uh, to the east of the Misty Mountains, but not going into Mirkwood, and you know they're kind of going down in that area. Remember, the geography is still evolving at this point, right? Anyway, they're in that area. They're going to meet a sorceress person who is going to be a friend and ally, right? And maybe give them a place to find, like a safe place to rest for a while on their trip. Right. To me, it kind of seems like, hey, Ross Goble is, is like totally right there. Right. It makes perfect sense for them to be thinking about for him to be thinking about Radagast in that regard. But then Lothlorien is going to is going to kind of displace him again. That's totally a wild theory speculation of my own. I have no other evidence for it other than the one reference to Radagast and the fact that Radagast doesn't appear. Um, it's possible that. The, that Radagast is going to is going to occupy a similar role that Saruman is going to come to occupy, but we don't think we've got any evidence that Radagast is ever going to be evil. So um, I don't think he's I, I I don't see any reason for us to imagine that he's going to fill that role, the Saruman role. Um, and of course, the island in the sea. Um, what is most fascinating to me there is that this is not Tolaresia that he's going to. He's not going to the Lonely Isle or to Valinor at the end. Um, because they totally exist, right? I mean, Tolaresia has been around forever. I mean, in Tolkien's world, it's been around for in Tolkien's mind, it's been around forever. Um, the 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 island that Frodo is actually going to go to at the end of the Lord of the Rings predates 1939 by 25 years. Okay, Tolaresia has been around for a heck of a long time already. Um, so if this were Tolaresia, he'd say Lonely Island take Frodo there and end, right? If that's what he was thinking. So it seems to me pretty clear, especially given the fact that the firewall is down and the floodgates are open with the Silmarillion material, when he says island and sea, take Frodo there in the end, he is not thinking, hey, have Frodo go to Tolaresia. That'd be awesome, right? That does not seem to be the concept here. We're talking about a random island, but it's interesting that he's going to take Frodo there in the end, right? Um, uh yeah, so I don't, um, I'm not sure what's going on. Is it Numenor, Yana says, well, Numenor's sunk, right? And that's been sunk. And there is continuity there with Sauron, right? Sauron was involved in the sinking of Numenor, so it can't be. That is it, England, Jennifer. Well, see, that's a really fascinating idea, right? Of course, and Tolaresia was England, Um You know what, Jennifer? I love that idea. Until it's proven otherwise, that's what I'm going to believe. I'm going to believe that the island that Frodo was going to retire to in the end uh, is England. Right? He's going to cross the British Channel and end up in the island which will soon become known as England. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Yeah. Good. James Stevens was thinking the same thing. I agree. Totally. We're going to run with that. All right. Let's keep going. Oh, I'm just making dots and not advancing my slide because I still have my fun pen on. Shift back to pointer mode. Oh dear, I've got to erase my my doodles here. Okay, there we go. Doodling was fun, briefly. Um, okay. Now, we're moving forward 
more definitively, right? No more random dragons and, you know, we're not, not going to sit here and bicker and argue about who lured whom. Um, we're going uh, to get an actual plot, right? Here we go. At end. When Bingo, written above Frodo, phew, oh, we're still we're, we're holding on to Frodo by the tips of our our, our fingers here, right? When uh, when Frodo at last reaches Crack and Fiery Mountain, he cannot make himself throw Ring away. He hears Necromancer's voice offering him great reward to share power with him if he will keep it. At that moment, Gollum, who had seemed to reform and had guided them by secret ways through Mordor, comes up treacherously, tries to take Ring. They wrestle, and Gollum takes Ring and falls into crack. The mountain begins to rumble. Bingo flies away. Love that. Uh, Eruption. Mordor vanishes like a dark cloud. Elves are seen riding like lights rolling away a dark cloud. The City of Stone is covered in ashes. Journey back to Rivendell. What of Shire? Sackville Baggins something lands something the Four Quarters. It's Christopher very tentatively suggests that it is possible that those illegible words are Sackville Baggins and his friends hurt the lands. There was war between the Four Quarters. Possible, but not certain that that's what that sentence is. Bingo makes peace and settles down in a little hut on the high green ridge, until one day he goes with the elves west beyond the towers. Better. No land was tilled. All the hobbits were busy making swords. I'm not sure I've read a sadder sentence than, No land was tilled. All the hobbits were busy making swords. But, um... Uh, anyway, um, <clears throat> um, several things here. Well, let's start. So, um, <laughs> exactly, Brian and Bri- Brian Dimmick, I think. I cannot think that Tolkien was not thinking that. I absolutely cannot. Brian Dimmick is making a joke and saying that the, the hobbits are, are 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 beating their their plowshares into swords, right? Which is of course a reversal of that verse in Isaiah, that prophecy in Isaiah, which is talking about you know in the end when the Messiah comes and they will beat their uh, their swords into plowshares, right, uh, and their spears into pruning hooks. Um, that is to say, like, war will end and the, and the time of peace will come. So, yes, I, Brian, I cannot believe that he is not thinking of the, uh, 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 of the, you know, that that's not an actual, that that's an actual joke. Um, isn't it Isaiah? Is it Joel, Ben? Maybe it is. Maybe I'm getting my prophets mixed up. Uh, certainly very possible. Um, Anyway, yeah, I, I love it. Good, Nancy was thinking the same thing. Yeah, exactly. And so was Tom Hillman. All three of you were thinking of that quotation. Yeah, see, I, I, I can't, uh, I can't think that it is a that that's a mistake. I mean, I, or not a mistake that that's an accident. You know, I can't think that Tolkien was not because it's a really famous prophecy, uh, and I think that's got to be a deliberate kind of joke. It is Isaiah, Michael. Okay, good. I thought I thought it was Isaiah, but again, sometimes I, sometimes I mess these things up. Um, but, um, okay. 
Well, let's back up for a second. Um, uh, first, let's focus on similarities. Uh, I mean similarities between this and the published text. Obviously, we can see that there are many things that are going to survive that are emerging here, right? Let's look at the essential element. Um, Frodo reaches the crack and can't throw the ring away, right? So the ultimate failure of Frodo to throw away the ring, the destruction of the ring at the hands of Gollum in an act of treachery, right? So that tre- that Gollum would appear to reform, but then turn on Frodo in an act of treachery. Um, this is, of course, the, the first act of treachery, right? So we don't get the Shelob's Lair business, obviously, in this projection. Um, but the concept that Gollum is going to almost reform and then betray him, but in the act of betrayal, and seizing the ring for himself, uh, he, both he and the ring itself will be destroyed because Frodo couldn't throw the ring in itself. So that's that's all coming out, right? Um, they wrestle and Gollum takes the ring and falls into crack. We don't get an explicit reference to the biting off of the finger yet, but um, um, but it's uh, uh, but it's it's there. Um, and then the. Notice how he's getting... It's almost like those times when he lapses into dialogue, right? He's not exactly lapsed, but the whole the whole sequence is playing out, right? The mountain begins to rumble. That sentence is so unnecessary. If for this kind of an outline, you can see how he's starting to... He's starting to, 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 see, to see the scene and describing what he sees, right? The mountain begins to rumble. Bilbo flies away. Or bingo, sorry. Eruption! Then it becomes... Really interesting, right? Um... Hang on. Good. Stephen said this. Um, Stephen says, so, uh, Stephen Covers says, so all of Mordor is going to be some kind of evil fairyland that just disappears? Yeah, St- so Stephen, I assume you're uh, referring to the, um, I assume you're referring to the line about the elves, right? And the, uh, Mordor vanishes like a dark cloud, and then elves are seen riding like lights rolling away a dark cloud. I don't understand that sentence at all. What are they riding? The clouds? Are the elves flying? I mean, not in the in the in this sense exactly. Stephen Stephen points out that this is this can be used as proof that hobbits have wings, obviously. Um, but uh, Mordor vanishes like a dark cloud. I mean, you can't rule out the idea, right? That he that he's imagining is some kind of evil fairy, and the spell is broken. Right, I mean the destruction of the ring. It's like you know, like you know, the the curse is broken and the 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 evil. I mean, think of how many times this kind of thing happens in fairy tales, right? In fairy tales, um, you know, like the curse is broken and the whole witch is, you know, like the whole like the 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 witch or giant or ogre's castle suddenly vanishes, right? That kind of thing happens all the time. Um, so. It's possible that he's actually envisioning something of this kind. When the spell is broken through the destruction of the ring, um, Mordor is going to go poof, right? It's not just going to collapse. It's going gonna, it's gonna to turn out to have been all some kind of spell, um, some kind of curse, some kind of enchantment. But the elves and their role, like what are they riding and how are they like lights? And are they are, are, so they're going to roll it away when the ring is broken? Like, what does that have to do with the destruction of the ring? I, I don't really pretend to understand that uh, that line, though. Um, 
Yeah, Nancy, I'm trying to make sense of that line, too. It does sound like the elves are removing it. So it's like a joint effort, right? First the curse is broken. Does that give the elves the opportunity to roll away the dark cloud and make Mordor go away? I, I don't... Maybe. I don't, I don't really understand that. Um, the city of stone is covered in ashes is a little bit... In fact, I really like that, that kind of image, actually. The fact that Minas Tirith isn't covered in ashes is actually a little bit disappointing in retrospect. Um, uh... The journey back to Rivendell. What happens in the Shire? Now we see, okay, stuff in the Shire has happened. So the parallel uh, with the dragon coming, again, if the dragon coming is sort of uh, the first glimpse of something has to happen to the Shire, right? We need to show that the hobbits are made of sterner stuff. Um, the, uh, the countryside needs to be woken up. Right, um, So we're not going to actually have an invasion of dragons do that job. Now we have civil war among the hobbits. And notice there doesn't seem to be a real resolution to this. Um, uh, Frodo, bingo, is just going to... Um, he's going to settle down in a little hut on, the, on a high green ridge, right? And then he's going to go away with the elves uh, because the hobbits are still apparently busy making swords. Um, ben Vetter is wondering if this... Like, when he says the city of stone is covered in ashes, what are we talking... Are we talking about, like, and it was real dirty and people were sweeping out their rooms for weeks after that? Or are we talking Pompeii? Right. I assume not Pompeii, Ben, because it's I, I, I mean, of course, we don't really know where the city of stone is located. You know, but, it, I, you know, in order for us to have a Pompeii situation, we have to be like on the side of the mountain. Right. And that seems a little bit unlikely, given what he's described about the fiery mountain and the land of Mordor. Um, but. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, let's keep going. This is the little glimpse of dialogue between Bilbo and Frodo, what sounds like Bilbo's death speech. By my subtitle there is a reference to, to Thorin's deathbed scene with Bilbo at the end of The Hobbit. Um, the ring is destroyed, said Bilbo, and I am feeling sleepy. We must say goodbye, Bingo. Written above Frodo. Yay! But it is a good place to say goodbye in the house of Elrond, where memory is long and kind. I am leaving the book of my small deeds here and I don't think I shall go to rest till I have written down your tale, too. Elrond will keep it. No doubt, after all hobbits have gone their ways into the past. Well, Bingo, my lad, you and I were very small creatures, but we've played our part. We've played our part. An odd fate we have shared, to be sure. This death scene isn't as moving as Thorin's death scene, um, but it has many really cool elements, right? The idea of... Notice the way, the things that Bilbo associates with the House of Elrond, right? Um, it's a good place to say goodbye because memory is long and kind there, and since memory is long, his book will be kept there, right? The memory of their deeds will be kept there, and of course, since memory is not only long but kind in Rivendell, presumably they won't be overcritical about his book, <laughs> which is nice. Um, and, uh, and Arthur, yes, you're right. We see Bilbo being really humble here. Humble in ways in which we don't necessarily see him being in other, in, in other places. The, uh, you and I are very small creatures. The, the book of my small deeds, he would not have called the book the book of his small deeds before. Um, but, uh, but I agree, Stephen. It is a very, uh, a very emotional scene. It is, this is, this is a, I, I really like this. Again, it, it doesn't have the power for me of Thorin's scene, um, but it is a really powerful, you know, we have played our part. Um, an odd fate we have shared, to be sure. Um, this is great. I love this. Um, 
Yeah. All right. Let's keep going, though. Two more. Almost done. Um, I know we're a little bit late, but I started late, so I don't feel bad. The road ahead. Okay. Have to wait till spring, or have to go at once? They go south along the mountains. Later or early? Snowstorms in the Red Pass. Journey down the R Redway. The River Redway, presumably. Uh, adventures with Giant Treebeard in Forest. That's the passage I read you from. You know, the giant flowers and everything. Mines of Moria. These again deserted, except for goblins. Land of Ond. Siege of the City. They draw near the borders of Mordor. In dark, Gollum comes up. He feigns reform? Or tries to throttle Frodo? Well, those would be two options. But Gollum has now a magic ring given by Lord and is invisible. Frodo dare not use his own. Cavalcade of Evil, led by seven black riders. Um, can I just say Cavalcade of Evil is a really good name, right? I don't think I would want to be in a band that was named the Cavalcade of Evil, but <laughs> it's, it's a pretty good name, don't you think? Um, <laughs> it sounds like a vaudeville play, says Arthur Harrow. Yeah, <laughs> that, that actually sounds much more plausible. Now presenting Cavalcade of Evil. I see it. I can totally see it. Anyway, okay, sorry. <clears throat> see Dark Tower on the horizon. Horrible feeling of an eye searching for him. Fiery Mountain. Eruption of Fiery Mountain causes destruction of tower. Okay. So this is the... <laughs> Tom Ellis says it would be a great name for a float at Mardi Gras. <laughs> yes, it would. Yes, it would. The Cavalcade of Evil. I love it. Um, okay, yeah. Um, Nancy, I agree. The the uh, the Gollum being invisible and having a magic ring probably goes with the throttling suggestion rather than the feigning reform suggestion. Uh, agreed about that. Um but, okay, so what I want to focus on here, of course, you know, we, we, there, we can see a bunch of, th- you know, does everything here have a, yes, everything in here is going to make it, right? We don't have any pygmies in here, right? You know, we don't have any, um, I mean, a giant tree beard is going to go, um, but he's going to get replaced, right? So, um, really, the adventures with giant tree beard is the only thing of here that's going to that's going to that's going to die. That doesn't even really have an analog. Again, there's like a parallel, like the new and improved uh, and totally different tree beard is going to be there. Um, but all of the rest of them have a much more direct life, right? They go south along the mountains. Yep, yep, that's going to happen. Snowstorms in the Red Pass. Yep, it's not going to be called that, but that's totally going to happen. Journey down the river Redway. Well, they're gonna go not the it's not the river Redway. They are gonna end up journeying down uh, the river that comes from the past, right? But not that not 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 that name. But still, it's gonna happen. Mines of Moria. These again deserted except for goblins. Yep, yep. Uh huh. That's gonna happen. Land of Ond. Right. That's gonna be there. It can be called Gondor, but that 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 land is gonna be there. Siege of the city. Yep. That's totally gonna happen. They're gonna draw near the borders of Mordor. Gollum is gonna come up, feigning reform, trying to throttle Frodo. Yes, all of the above. Uh, not doesn't have a magic ring, but again, that's a detail we're gonna change. 
do the seven black riders lead a cavalcade of evil? Oh, a cavalcade of evil is indeed going to come out of Minas Morgul, right? Um, you see the dark tower on the horizon? Is there going to be a horrible feeling of an eye? Oh, you bet there is, right? Fiery mountain, eruption, destruction. Absolutely. So this is pretty good, right? Um, obviously, there's lots missing. Obviously, there are many of these things that are going to go through. Lots, you know, There's lots of maturation process. Um, I think it's pretty clear that we don't see... Um, um, I, I, I think it's pretty clear that we do not see Tolkien having the whole story in his mind here, right? Um, these things are sketchy enough, and some of them are, are different enough that it's pretty clear that these are... He, I, no one would really call the departure of the, of the Witch King from Minas Morgul at the head of his army uh, uh, a cavalcade of evil, right? I mean, like, technically it is a cavalcade of evil, but that's, it's clearly not like that he had a direct picture of that exact thing. Um, and Gollum, obviously, he's not really worked out Gollum, and obviously the major difference that several of you, of course, are pointing out is the whole new ring thing. Right, uh, Gollum getting a new ring uh, from the Lord of the Rings, which we had uh, heard about before, um, in 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 a different set of notes as well. Uh, yeah, exactly. Jennifer says, "Oh yeah, he's definitely seventy five percent done." Right, this stuff is going to take any time at all. I know, right, Jennifer? We, we, and 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 he's not even imagining Rohan. Right, we, we're gonna, we, we're going to add Rohan and Lothlorien. Neither one of them are in this uh, are in this outline. So. Yeah, but even without them, um, uh, it's uh, it's 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 not going to be quick. A penciled marginal note at so these these are notes to that list. Asks whether Bingo, with Frodo written beside, should be captured by the Dark Lord and questioned, but be saved by Sam. Okay, now it's true. Christopher says that this is like the first glimpse of like the the Tower of Kirithungul. Yes, clearly, that's going to be the episode that takes the place of this. But again, I would say it's not a linear thing, right? It's not just a... That's a significant shift. Um, being captured by Shagrat and held prisoner until you might be questioned later on is a very different thing from being captured by the Dark Lord and questioned, right? Um, can I just say, the fact that Tolkien was considering... Uh, having Frodo in the hands and under the questioning of Sauron himself and have Sam come in and do a solo rescue out of Dol Guldur itself? Man, that is boss, okay? Like, I would have loved to see Sam Gamgee rescue Frodo from the clutches of Sauron himself. Would we get a duel between Sam and Sauron? Right, like, I can only dream of it. Anyway, okay, but we have a further emendation in ink. Luthien style, Nancy. Exactly. Exactly. And Stephen Cover was thinking the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jennifer's hoping that maybe Sam could come in and have a singing duel uh, with Sauron. Hey, why not? I mean, Sauron has a pretty good record on singing duels, but, you know, I bet Sam could do it. Um, yeah. Oh, man, how awesome would that be? Anyway, okay, okay. More notes. In the first line, against or have to go at once, he wrote at once. He directed, that is to say, so we're not going to wait until spring in Rivendell. They're going to go on Christmas instead. Um, he directed that Mines of Moria should proceed Adventures with Giant Tree, Beard in Forest, and come between Snowstorm in the Red Pass and Journey Down the River Redway. And after these again deserted except for goblins, he added Loss of Gandalf. So we do also foresee the 
loss, the the, the death of Gandalf in Moria. Um, is he going to come back? Right? Is that foreseen as well, or is that going to be later on? I don't know. You know, we'll we'll we'll, we'll have to go on and see. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, so. Um, yeah, good. Okay. Um, uh, I'm going to let you guys go because I know I'm keeping you irresponsibly waiting now. Uh, but that's it. Got through all my slides today. Uh, next time. So there are three chapters left and we've got two weeks left. So I'm really, I'm going to do like one and a half. So my recommendation to you, read the next two chapters because um, I may end up bouncing around a little bit in the second. I hope to, to, to get through all of the first chapter and, and you know, do at least half of what I want to do in the, in the, in the second chapter uh, before we finish next time. But So read the next two chapters um, and, uh, we'll, and we'll, we'll see. We're actually going to move on, right? Super exciting. So... Uh, Thanks. Thanks very much, everybody. Uh, and uh, I look forward to seeing you guys next week for our penultimate class as the Return of the Shadow class is actually going to come to an end. And I think as of next week, it's going to be it's going to pull into a tie with the Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell class for the longest Mythgard Academy uh, uh, class ever. And then we'll pass it in the following week. So there we go. Thanks, everybody. I will see you guys next week, normal time. Uh, Have a good weekend. See you guys next week. Bye.